Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In Darkness is over. It's time to. Ugh, I don't even know, man. Andy, we spend a lot of time in the sewers. And when I say a lot of time, I mean a lot of time in the sewers with this movie. What did you think in darkness? I, uh, okay, well, what I think of the movie in general, or what I think of spending time in the sewers, I don't mind spending time in the sewers. I don't mind a dark film. I have heard that about you often. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm just a regular. I'm a regular mm-hmm. customer. Mm-hmm. I, I know some people have issues with film that is just so dark and so constant with the darkness. It really didn't bug me. In fact, I kind of thought it was uh, really kind of exciting to see a film that really just dug in deep and said, this story takes place in the sewers, we're going to do a lot of dark filming, and it's going to take place in the sewers, in the dark, dark sewers. I really appreciated that. I enjoyed the film, as you and was one enjoys Holocaust films. Um, it is a, it's a dark film to watch, but I found it to be a powerful story. I didn't find myself ever falling in love with the film, despite finding a, an appreciation for it and the work that Holland and her team did to put it together and to tell this story, which I didn't know anything about. I did not know anything about it either. Um, I, In terms of this being the second film that I am taking in from Agnieszka Holland, our, our protagonist of our particular series, um, I, I found it... Um, uh, a generally, as you, as you say, an enjoyable watch. Um, I feel like it is unfairly maligned in criticism because of its sort of uh, the, the, the polarity against Schindler's List. I've read that a lot. And not the least of which from the great Ebert, who actually has some really kind of lame things to say about this movie. Uh, and, and so I want to talk a little bit about some of the the criticism that has that sure. you know came out about it but but i want to start with a question for you um that i think it, it's a follow-up to our to the question i had last week i characterized last week's film um as an europa easy, europa just europa, europa yep 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 thank you for saying that as an easy holocaust god uh i feel like this is an, an exercise in entrapment um, <laughs> you're, as, you're setting this one up man <laughs> as an easy Holocaust film. That is, I feel like the message was strong, but I did not come out of the film exhausted. I didn't come out of the film just really struggling with it um, and with that experience. Like, I, I felt sort of beaten up by by some Holocaust films, some experiences. I, they're hard to take in. This one I didn't. Um, this week, I felt more exhausted by this film. And I'm trying to figure out why. What is the difference between the telling of this story and uh, the, and both of them were true stories uh, and the way she approached that story that made it, I, I think, it, that, that had a, a broader emotional appeal? 
Do you have any sense of that, or am I just is this just a well? Me no, problem? I, I I think that they're just very different types of films. I mean, we even talked about this last week. Europa, Europa. It uh, you know, it's hard to classify completely as a Holocaust film. It really is yeah. a coming of age story of this kid as he's going through his Pilgrim's Progress journey around. Europe during uh, World War II and and how he's kind of shifting roles and learning from people and stuff. And it really, it never, it, it touches on a lot of the stuff that happens in the Holocaust, but never in a way this one does. This is a direct Holocaust story. This is a story of, you know, the, the, the Germans coming in in this particular uh, town, Lvov, Probably not saying it quite Lvov. right, but Lvov. 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 I had to have my Russian-speaking wife tell me that. There you go. They, it's it's a it's a Polish town. The Russians are controlling it for the Germans before the Germans end up coming in. Uh, it was a little kind of confusing as far as all that goes, but basically, this is a, a story about Jewish um, uh, Poles who are hiding, and uh, because they know. The others who aren't hiding are either getting put into camps or killed. And we are following a group of of Jews who hide in the sewers, and in doing so, they fall in with a sewer worker who is a Polish Christian who ends up kind of helping them. And I, because of that, I can see where comparisons to Schindler's List uh, come from, because it mm-hmm. very much is... A, about a Gentile helping these people hide over this period of time so that they can survive. And so I, I feel like the comparison with Europa Europa is tricky. And to that extent, it is a much harder Holocaust movie because this is really about the Holocaust. We're seeing the awful things that happen to, I mean, early on, right after they, we see our, our protagonist, uh, Poldek or Leopold, stealing because uh, he's you know he's just stealing from these houses where people get taken mm-hmm. and as he and his his partner uh, uh Sopek flee they um are running through the woods and they are hearing screams and then we cut over to that and see what's happening and it's just a bunch of soldiers who are basically torturing a group of women by making them run naked through the forest before they shoot them all it's mm-hmm. just it's atrocity after atrocity through this film and it's it, it becomes a very difficult film to watch because of that. And so, yes, this is a hard Holocaust movie because we're right in it, seeing the horrors of what happened, um, whether it's up on the surface or down in the sewers. Uh, let's start with a little bit of of the criticism. I want to start with a passage from Richard Corliss, uh, who writes uh, fondly of this movie in general. He says, real life brims with startling atrocities as well as cliches, and this film is full of both. Ultimately, it melts a skeptic's resistance and satisfies for the intensity of the performances and for the artful contrasting of life on the teeming streets of Lvov with life and death in the dim rat-infested sewers. Transcending hollow kitsch. in darkness is often a thrilling adventure picture, as if Anne Frank has found an inglorious bastard to help her make The Great Escape. Richard Corliss. <laughs> That's a very odd, uh, somewhat right. cheeky way to <laughs> to spin this story. Yeah, but he spins it with fondness. All right? So I, in general, sure. he, he yes. likes the movie. And I would say that, that, that uh, you, well, that, that sort of meets with, with a lot of my uh, feelings about the movie. Sure. Uh, 
but then I then I went over and read Ebert's extended review, and here, here's what he says. In Darkness is yet another movie in which Jews escape death in the Holocaust through the actions of a Gentile with a conscience. They survive because he helps them hide in the sewers of Lvov. That's bad luck for the audience, which has to peer for too long into the dim rat-infested shadows and endure standard melodramatic typecasting. Is there anyone who still requires this lesson on the evil of the Nazis and the resilience of human nature? Schindler's List said it everything this film has to say, and much more. It was better directed, better written, better acted, and for that matter, more entertaining. This should be a more absorbing story than Agnieszka Holland, the director, is able to make it. Somewhere in between these two perspectives, I think, is a rational review of the movie, and I don't know (laughs) that either one of them actually gets there. Um, I I thought Ebert's perspective on it was too, uh, a a, a little bit too... um, uh, too far. He went a little bit too far with it, but some of it he actually points out later in the review that is it, um, uh, is it just plain wrong to say that a movie about this kind of story that tells this sort of true story is not entertaining, is not good, is not a good film? That it, there is some sort of moral judgment that you're making as a viewer of the film just to have an opinion that is less than this movie is important. That's a really interesting element when it comes to this type of story is finding that line between an interesting story that illuminates and and teaches you something you didn't know, which also, I think, works in context of a lot of documentaries, right? Mm-hmm. Also, telling a story like that in a way that becomes a, a gripping cinematic story where it's really kind of something that taps into your consciousness and you can really connect to. It's not just a lesson, but it's something where you can really feel you're going along for the ride. And I think that likely is his challenge. And I think for him, it really just felt like a lesson. And I don't think that he really enjoyed um, the way that Holland and her team told this story and didn't find it to be anything like Spielberg's a similar story that draws you in very much and and allows you to kind of appreciate everything while still drastically um, finding a connection with Oscar Schindler at the end as he kind of breaks down and 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 has his moment. Uh, this film, I, I think Holland purposefully chose to give all of the characters real flaws and that can be a tricky thing in cinematic storytelling because when you have characters who are actually flawed and are kind of real quote unquote it becomes a a trickier way to tell a story and expect your audience to find those connections you know it's harder to have a save the cat moment when you have these flawed characters who are you know having affairs or um, you know, just not nice people, stealing stuff, whatever it might be, it is a lot more challenging to really do that save the cat if if it's um, a story where you really need to find an emotional connection. But she's, at the same time, she's not doing it in a cinematic way that it's it's not as easy a way out to tell a story like that, where you actually have more complicated characters and you have you know, trickier situations for these people to to navigate. 
So I think that you're right. I think that there is a line somewhere between these these reviews because, I mean, I don't think this is um, a perfect film. I don't think that... I, I personally do prefer Schindler's List over this, but I think that Ebert took it too far. I think Corliss was a little too playful in his review. I think there is something really strong with this film, and it's it's worth seeing for sure. It's it's a dark story, but I think it's more than just a straight up kind of documentary lesson of what happened in this particular story. Well, it, it, to that point, first and foremost for me, it illuminates a story of uh, the the real humans at some level that were uh, actually, you know, doing the right thing for the right reasons. That's what we get in Sosha, right? It's this guy who is already, as you say, flawed. I mean, we meet him. He's, uh, you know, he's a thief, right? He's stealing from uh, these empty houses in this village and uh, running through the woods. And he's not a, a good guy, but he's also trying to do it for the right reasons, right? For his family, we get a setup of his family and how, you know, he's he too is living in in a state of fear and just trying to stay as under the radar as he can, but he does have a unique set of skills, right? This unique understanding of the sewer system. And um, and and so as we kind of spend our time with him, it unravels that he is he is the guy, the only guy really capable of and and sort of emotionally capable of doing the thing that needs to be done. And uh, I think that this that that it was portrayed really well. He is absolutely my favorite thing going on in this movie. Um, every time he was on screen, I was just right in there with him. I was super eager to see what is he going to do next? How is he going to navigate this? He was played by Robert Vietzkiewicz, uh, who, who plays uh, Leopold Sosha, Sosha, and he is just fantastic. He has just the right amount of Joe Nobody on his face, and yet uh, a sort of weathered kind of underground wisdom that uh, I, I found deeply personable. And and so I really loved uh, how he, he walked this line between figuring out, like starting by doing the right thing for the wrong reason, getting paid for it, right? Saving lives for 500 whatevers uh, a week to doing the right thing for the right reason because their lives were in danger and he was he was a protector you know fulfilling the archetype uh, and uh, and so i was i was encouraged by his portrayal i was encouraged by this character and i i felt really good about it i couldn't agree more with uh Vinskevich. i found his face just just exuded so much emotion and you could just read everything on it without uh, him having to say anything. It was a fantastic casting decision on Holland's part. Uh, she said that, you know, he hadn't been acting long before this. I mean, he, I mean, he had been acting since the mid nineties, but it was really in bit parts. It wasn't until the mid two thousands, mid aughts, where he really started picking up with what he was doing. And by then he was, I think mid forties. And so it's, kind of great to see this guy kind of leading this film. And it's just like he's a mesmerizing presence on screen. Absolutely great choice. I couldn't agree more with you on, on him. What's going on in the sewers? <laughs> I, I, I think this is, I, I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because there is, there is something that is, is as illustrative of the human experience by what's going on in the darkness um, as there is going on with, with uh, you know, with uh, socias experience down in the in the sewers we have a, a bifurcated group of of jewish villagers who are uh just trying to 
stay alive, right? They're they're hiding from the first from the uh, from the Polish uh, police who are working for the Germans, and then the the Nazis who come in. Is that and, and is the that Russians are the Russians are in there at some point because his friend is Poldek, isn't his friend right? working is, for, is his friend Russian or Polish? His friend is. I thought he was working with the Russians, wasn't he? Okay, uh, I, I'm not quite sure now. Yeah, I I, I was not entirely sure about that either. That was a, a relationship I didn't didn't quite understand, but I just knew he was an affiliate, and he they was, were, well, they were old friends from yeah, like school or something, and right. Yeah, we know that they are uh, that that the the group of of. Uh, Jewish villagers underground, uh, and Sosha has taken it on himself to to put them in places in the sewers that cannot be easily sussed out by the by the Germans. Yeah, and slow, you know, pretty quickly. I think in the first hour, the the um, uh, the larger group gets sort of uh, well, it shrinks. Yeah, and th- that was one of my questions. It's like, what happened to the rest of those people? Did they? Because because basically, um, Leopold or Poldek, as he's I guess his abbreviated mm-hmm. name is, he brings them brings twelve. He only lets twelve people come over to his safe area, and all the rest of the people. I guess they just stay there. And well, and then Janek goes know. back and finds them after they've all been killed. Uh, and and well, he takes them and drags them out into the river. I wasn't sure if that was the same group or because we only ever saw like a few people, and I don't, I didn't recognize yeah. those people. But did you think that there was the same? That's the same how group I. Of people? That's how I saw it. So I okay, that was right. a question, open question for me. I didn't, I did not know. I, I wasn't uh, sure if it was a totally different group because when he goes to look at the, look for them, you know, he, he didn't seem to think that it was the other half of that group. So I, I mm-hmm. guess I just wasn't sure. But you know, I guess I guess it was just one of those things that he had chosen to save twelve, and for whatever reason, whoever well, the mean, rest of them were, it almost you know we just had to assume that the rest of them ended up dying in one way or another, right? Yeah, and it wasn't good because over the course of the 14 months that they were underground, these were the only ones who came out in in Lvov, as I understand it. This was the story. It was, in fact, uh, according to the the book, if I understand it right, it was actually much more, uh, many, many more uh, villagers who went down into the sewers and only these, this small handful came back up. Um, The the handful that was in direct custody, sort of, of Sosha. Uh, so it is a it's it's a gruesome story. Um, now, while they're down there, uh, different, you know, they they just are. I, I don't know how to how to judge human character in that sort of condition. Right. Because they immediately devolve into like soap opera, emotional and sexual economics that uh, I feel like is uh, uh, erupts out of the emotional strain of being in that situation and just needing uh, a release, I guess. But some of these folks underground just don't seem like very nice people (laughs) to one another. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, imagine, because, I mean, this is, you're you're going down there with a large number of people. I mean, when they first go down, it's probably, I don't know, uh, 30-some. I don't know how big the group was initially, but it was a decent chunk. But these were just people who were like, basically tagged along and so imagine you know friends neighbors coworkers who happen to be near who go hey there's a safe uh place to go let's go 
you're not necessarily going to like all those people. And so I think that that, and this was something that Holland really wanted to make sure she got out there, is that a lot of times in Holocaust movies, the Jewish people who are the prisoners or are the ones hiding or whatever are portrayed in a way where they are, it's it's hard to to say, but it's almost like a the Holocaust stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. Of the Jewish people who are in the camps or underground or whatever, and they are just the downtrodden person who there's not much of a personality there outside of that as the representation for who they are. And right, Holland, it's, the ho- it's the equivalent of a Holocaust red shirt. Yeah, right. I guess you could say that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Holland had a friend, and he's he's dedicated at the beginning of the film. He had died, I think, just before production. His name was Marek Edelman. He had. Uh, they had talked, and you know, they both had family who had gone through all of this and had died and, and suffered and everything. And he said, you know, the Jewish people are always portrayed with this stereotype, but we were all just still regular people. There were people mm-hmm. still having sex and committing crimes and doing drugs and there was all this stuff actually still happening, but it's never shown that way. You know, a lot of times they were still having sex because that's how it helped you get through. It helped you, you know, realize that there was this life still to live. It's what humans do. Right. It's what humans do. And so that was something Holland very much wanted to make sure she included with these people to kind of help tell that story. And so... Mm It is kind of strange when you have these moments when everybody is sleeping and and two people who aren't married um, or, you know, they they go and have an affair in a room where everyone else is, uh, including their spouses. It it creates for odd uh, situations, but it also, I think, made these people more real. And that was, uh, I guess that's what I was, you know, alluding to earlier with the way that Spielberg portrays his characters, um, where there, there's still, you know, journeys for the characters over the course of the film, certainly, mm-hmm. like there is here. But in this particular film, there's still are the, a lot of different flaws exhibited in these characters. And I think that was something with a lot of just the these affairs and the sex and everything else going on that we were seeing these real people just actually struggling, but still saying, I'm still a human and, and making those choices. Yeah, it, it made it hard to watch some of their some of their stories, because I think to your point, we have been conditioned in, I would say, the popular media uh, examination of, of Holocaust stories. And those are anchored by, uh, you know, movies like, we'll say Schindler's List, right, where there is this sort of stereotype of of the the filler crowds that we just have these there there are some some jewish archetypes of the old wizened um matriarch the old wizened patriarch the young able-bodied um and uh man and woman and then always the the adorable children downtrodden children and they're just like cookie cutter stamped (laughs) across across the the experience because you know you need a lot of people to show the 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 uh expansiveness of the horror uh but you you also need to be able to focus on just a few to tell the story and i think that is a that is a complication of making movies like this that this movie is able to do uniquely that this movie because it takes place so much of it takes place around these 12 people uh and we get to see 
uh, a little bit more sort of character humanity out of each of these people, all the way from from the uh, old patriarch who's who's just trying to get keep his money or jewels in place so that he can pay off Sosha to the little girl and the little boy who are just playing with dolls and playing with rats and and doing their coloring uh, in the sewer. Right. That is a that is a gift of this movie that is unique uh, and and I, I think makes it. It, it makes it worth seeing. And that's one of the things that I think makes me um, blanch at Ebert's review, because I, I think that's that's too much. This is a perspective on the Holocaust I've never seen before. Yeah, I I agree with you. And, and to that end, I think Richard Corliss did have a right where he talks about the, the atrocities as well as the cliches mm-hmm. that are a part of real life. And you have a lot of that because it kind of fits in with the way that life is. And in the context of this story, the way that things happened, you know, we, we had this, this young girl there and, and uh, it just is, it kind of fits. I think Mm -hmm. that it's also just the nature of cinematic storytelling to kind of include these different elements because it does help kind of get things across in a streamlined fashion because, you know, films generally are in that two hour window of time. And I think that helps. So I think that, uh, that, uh, Holland and uh, Robert Marshall's book and uh, David, well, I don't know, Shamoon, I think his mm-hmm. script, I think that they captured a lot of that very well. You know, um, mm-hmm. if there's if there is an element of it that I found myself struggling with from time to time, it was the way that they moved through time. I felt that there were times where situations were set up as problem like situations that were problematic, for example, when uh, Sosha and, well, when her wife, his wife, finds out that he is helping a group of Jews underground, and she gets very upset with him. And uh, we don't have a clear sense of time. We just know time is passing. And, you know, a few scenes later, she seems totally fine, and we don't really get a sense as to was there a resolution to that there was over time as we learned and actually there was a deleted scene where he actually brings her down and introduces her to as he says his jews but um but without that scene it's just you know we just later find that when his uh policeman friend comes over and his daughter accidentally says uh, you know that's for that's for your jews daddy and uh, his wife and his child are in on it, and everything mm-hmm. seems copacetic all of a sudden. So those were issues that I felt could have been cleaned up a little in the script, just so we knew if something was getting set up, that there is an actual payoff for it, you know? Yeah, I, I felt that that was, um, I, I agree with you there. And I think that was troublesome, especially because I think that, uh, you know, his his wife, um, Wanda, uh, played by uh, King of Priests, was fantastic like i really enjoyed watching her and i felt like she you could tell especially at the end right the ultimate climax when they're they're helping the um you know socia's jews out of the out of the manhole cover the manhole and he is saying these are my jews these are my jews and she (laughs) has made them a cake and there is a massive celebration and joy and uh i i felt like a, a little bit that wanda 
in my head was out of place. Like she didn't have a rewarding emotional journey to get there. There was just a lot sort of missing in the bridge between her being incredibly angry and fearful to baking a cake. Especially because they set her character up in the beginning as the sympathetic one. We are hearing stories about, hey, that we're all the same, you know. But then when she finds out that he actually is helping them and potentially putting their family at risk, she's very upset. So that was, I was like, well, that's a really interesting character. She really supports these people and wants to help. But when it actually comes time to being part of the solution, helping them, she's very upset and doesn't want to be a part because of how it can affect her family. But then we don't get to watch her journey. Which is a super rewarding journey to have, right? Absolutely. That is the that's kind of the beating heart of their family and the struggle that we get to watch him face it because he's face to face with his with his people down there. And she doesn't have the opportunity to do that. I I, now that, you know, talking about that deleted scene, I, I regret not having that experience with her. I think that would absolutely bridge the you know her emotional narrative for me yeah and that's one of the that's one of the tricks throughout the film is where you're dealing with a 14 month period of time and you're getting a lot of flashes over that large period of time and so you're not getting all the setups for the payoffs or you're not getting all the payoffs for the setups and that for me that was one of the struggles with the way that the script was constructed i felt like there were some ways they could have strengthened it um just with these characters but that doesn't change the fact that i really appreciate how they made these characters feel 100 percent authentic to me Let's talk uh, a little bit, if we can, about life in the sewer, in particularly the the production design, the use of light, the way they portrayed life underground. Yeah. Wow. What'd what a think? challenge. So th- for this, they filmed about 20% of all the sewer scenes in the actual sewers, not in in Lvov, but in, I can't remember what town they were in. I think, what did she say it was? I think it was Leipzig. Um, where they shot this. And so they filmed about 20% in real sewers to get, a a lot of that was like the journeying around to get shots that felt like real, uh, just, you know, big sewers in the space. The rest of it was filmed in sets and they basically took a stage and they built this huge maze of these things where they could actually, with like almost with one shot, they could kind of maneuver through the entire thing and really feel like you were in these sewers and obviously with all the the rainstorm and all the flooding and everything they they had quite a bit of work to do but tied into that we also have to bring up all of the cinematography by Yolanta Deluska and the way that she was she and Holland really decided to film the dark because Holland told her she really wanted to create a real dark down there, not just a Hollywood. She really wanted to avoid doing what looked like the third man sewers, as she mm-hmm. called it, with with dramatic lighting through the sewers, creating these fantastic shafts of light and everything. She wanted it to be dark, dingy. And uh, they were filming on red cameras, which aren't super sensitive. So they had to kind of push the the look or push the image to get the dark look, which is kind of, you know, manipulating it um, after the fact to kind of create this extra dark look. Um, but I, and I think if you tie all this together, it created, I don't know, for me, it created an, a very authentic sense of just kind of life down there and what it must be like and why somebody like little Christina 
you know, needed that moment where she actually got to poke her head out for a minute just to kind of see the sunlight again. That that was a real gift in the film, and, and I think a great break for us because you know her as a vessel of of this, you know, getting this freedom, getting to see what life is like, getting to see the animals and the birds. I think was uh, was a real treat. I think the use of flashlights then became uh, a real sort of supplementary actor in in the film and the way she allowed the actors to illuminate one another. I, I found fascinating. Uh, you know, life uh, under there became uh, a thing that was revealed to us scene by scene rather than just something we're allowed to take in, Uh, especially once we got to their part of the sewer where you have the two kind of uh, eh, patio areas, bench areas (laughs) between the actual sewage. waterfront patios. Yes, I think think that we can safely call them that. Yeah, no, it was, uh, that was grim. Where you can enjoy, enjoy the wildlife. Yes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Lots of rats. Uh, You know, are you a fan of rats? Do you like the rats? I am. uh, am, I'm impartial, I think, to rats. That's too bad. I think I I could enjoy. I think I could enjoy pet rats. Yeah. I think I could enjoy, uh, you know, if I if I was living in sewers and they were the nearest thing. uh, Sure. I would feed one and make it my own. (laughs) The thing about rats in sewers I worry about is that they'd be the hungry ones. They'd be the ones that would give you a little nibble at night. I'm a pet rat fan. <laughs> I had a couple of rats we had for the kids when they were younger. I grew to really love those guys. The worst thing about the rats is that they died so darn quickly. Like, they don't have a very long lifespan. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I really don't mind the rats. But I can see these rats. These were not sewer rats. These were imported pet rats, right? <laughs> the sewer rats <laughs> that you see in like New York and New Jersey that actually live under there are dogs. Like they're not small. They are <laughs> big rats that uh yeah, that, that these that, that was a that was another line that was crossed <laughs> for me. <laughs> not enough rats. Uh, not enough rats. of the rats. Huh? Not enough of the big rats. So anyhow, uh, <laughs> delightful. Uh, experience Indeed. underground, and I think it was—I I think it was actually a, um, a extremely well architected. And to your point I, uh, about filming on sets, the the tank work that they had to have done for the to get the family uh, and the navigating the rainstorm at the end—that was um, that was reasonably epic. It was quite a bit of work. I just I kept thinking about that as I was watching. Uh, not just the plight of the the Jews trapped in that one room with very mm-hmm. little air Which because was it's flooding, horrifying, horrifying. But also, you you know, it's a film. You've got a moment of tension where uh, Sosha is with his police friend, who's now onto him basically, as they're racing around in the sewers and avoiding the floods and everything. And his friend gets lost, and it it created a really tense environment down there with all of the water everywhere it was just i thought that was an incredibly effective way to build to a climax truly exhilarating truly exhilarating yeah. absolutely yeah. great uh you want to talk a little bit about language you know, I thought it was interesting. That was something else that Holland really wanted with this is to really create 
the languages that were really going on here. So you have Polish, you have German, you have Russian, Ukrainian. There's this, what, what, um, what Sosha and his family speak is kind of a, a Cockney version of Polish that's kind of a lost language, it sounded like, according to Holland. And they kind of had to learn how to speak this way for the film. And I found that to be really interesting. And a lot of these actors didn't speak their particular languages that they were having to speak. And so some of them were learning a variety of different languages and having to act in those. And I thought it made for a really interesting film, especially when you keep having these people. And this is when you're English and you don't know any of these languages and they're bouncing back and forth, it's kind of hard to tell. Although I can generally tell the difference with like the, certainly the Russian and the German, there are areas with Polish where I can kind of hear it, but it was fun to hear them saying, oh, just speak Russian or just speak, I don't know why you just can't speak Polish, you know, whatever, back and forth. And I, I was like, I really appreciated that, whereas kind of like even they were kind of just like getting on each other's case for cross uh, crossing the languages so much. That I, I think interestingly that I, I think that scene that you point out was one of the exhilarating dramatic scenes that they were arguing over which language to speak in the sewer. And I was riveted. I thought that <laughs> conversation was great. The three of them in particular that were jock- jockeying between, you know, who's going to come and you've got to decide and only 12 and and speak Polish. And it was it was uh, great. Really was very much. So last week we said we were going to table our discussion about what we're learning about Agnieszka Holland through her direction. And here we are. We finished our second film. Uh, Have you picked up any uh, insights that you would like to share with the class? Well, based on really what she's said about both films and what I've seen in both films, she is a director who really appreciates characters that do feel authentic, that aren't necessarily just kind of stereotypes and cutouts. Um, They feel very real. And whether it's benefiting the story or making it a more challenging story to be involved in, she doesn't like that kind of simplification of characters. She likes complexity in her characters. That's definitely something so far in both films that that I've seen. Now, as far as the actual style of of filmmaking, there's such different films, it's really hard to pinpoint some of the specifics because I feel like she allowed herself to be a lot more playful in the way that the story was told, certainly in the script, but even just like the camera work and everything else in Europa Europa, it was a lot more um it just had a playful feel to it. This film, you know, I, I guess I would say they they she's definitely is not she doesn't shy away from um moving her camera and and allowing there to be a lot of life within the lens. Um, but I think she also knows how to adapt it to the story. I guess that's uh, that's what I would say. Yeah, I think she, I, you know, to the point about moving the camera, you know, in the last one, we uh, we had more activity, I think, on, uh, I think by necessity or, or certainly by fiat, <laughs> we had more activity on the vertical axis, right? There was, there were more shots like on cranes, more of the God's eye stuff. We had, uh, just more of the scope. Uh, and, and I think that played into the journey, the, the Pilgrim's Pro- Progress journey, the coming of age story, whatever it was. We got much more of a sense of the world where he was living in. And I think what, what I, uh, like about this movie is just how well she's able to translate from, uh, a, a wide scope 
a wide view of the world to such a compression of space to show that these people live in a world that's only this big for a long time, as opposed to this massive journey across countries that uh, uh, that our protagonist uh, Sally took last time. Uh, And and so I think that was uh, particularly interesting. I'll be I'm really looking forward to next week's movie because um, I I feel like there is so much you can get from somebody who has put themselves in 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 like Nazi Germany Poland mode because anytime <laughs> we're not in the sewer it looks like it's part of the same obviously natural world history cinematic universe um because rubble and buildings look only so different and uh she is as you say she's an authenticist right i mean she's she wants it to look the way it would look and uh, and i got that sense from this movie and i'm ready to see where she goes in in a different period what are we going to call her style hollandist Holla, holla. <laughs> well, we need to workshop that. Well, clearly, we yeah. have to workshop that. Uh, so far, I vote on Hollandist. Hollandist? Yeah. Or Hollandish? No, I like ist. You do? Not est. Like, she is the Hollandist. She's the Hollandist. Out of all she's the Hollandist. She's the Hollandist. No, no she is you a don't Hollandist. Like that. Okay. But that's like she a, is a follower. Hollandist. Of Holl- I don't like, know. Yeah, yeah, she's a cultist of some sort. Yeah, it's a little weird. Hollandist. But... I'm not as much of a fan of that. Yeah. Okay. I don't we'll want to. to we will cult. have to workshop. Yeah. No cults. No. We cults. have too many of those around this show. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the script goes, I don't have much to say. Um, it was a uh, Robert Marshall's book was pretty much told from my understanding. It's it's really kind of Sosha's story, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of my understanding. Is it's it's told kind of from his perspective. I think. I'm not 100% sure on that. I haven't read it. So I, I don't I don't know how it was adapted. I don't know where they came across it. Um, I, I don't have as much information on that. But, uh, but it certainly made me curious about the book In the Sewers of Lvov. There is an, another, uh, and another thing I was not able to watch in time, but uh, Agnieszka Holland did another, uh, like a, a short, a 27-minute uh document documentary piece called in light uh in uh released in parallel with this film um in late 2011 holland met holocaust survivor and fellow pole christina cheeger on polish soil it is a pretty interesting point about this whole thing that that here we have this young girl uh christina who by this point was in her uh 70s who you know she had you know when talking with her friends and i did watch in light it was really interesting when in talking with her friends she had said you know they're always like gosh this would make for an amazing movie and she's like well uh, only if only if uh Agnieszka holland could direct it and lo and behold uh. she ends up finding out uh from her because she wrote her own memoirs which uh they were called the girl with the green sweater and uh her agent told her that oh they're making a movie about this story and she's like what are you talking about and and she learned about it and holland and and they reached out and holland had no idea that this young girl was still alive she thought everybody had died and uh so they met and she uh said you know i'd love for you to watch the movie let me know if there's anything that you want changed we're still finishing it up but we could certainly 
we're still in a place still where we could make some small changes. And, and uh, Christina found it to be wonderful and didn't want any changes. She thought it was, it was just oh. great. And so, um, and it sounds like they've just kind of become friends and hit it off, but, uh, just what a, what a fascinating story. And so, yeah, really there is kind of two tellings of this story. One from, uh, Sosha's point of view in the sewers of Lvov and the other one from one of the children who lived there. And what's interesting is she talked about how different um, their experience was because she said for her growing up as a kid, she had so much more fun in the sewers because she really got to be a kid and just mm-hmm. hang out and do stuff. Before that, in the I guess you could say before things really fell apart, Kids were the first people that were taken. The, you know, they would take the kids either to camps or wherever. So a lot of people were hiding their kids. And so her parents, and we see this kind of briefly in the film, her parents would basically hide the kids in the back of the closet all day long while both parents were working. And um, they couldn't come out until later in the day. And so the kids had like zero childhood in uh, when the city was occupied before they went into hiding. So what a strange perspective as a child growing up. Truly. Music and Tony Lazakiewicz. This was a, uh, I think... Holland had, she was looking for something. She tried a lot of different things for this and wanted something that wasn't going to be an emotional kind of connection. She wanted something that just felt like tones for the kind of creating tones for the films. And she was convinced that it wasn't going to work. You know, she tried a whole variety of different uh, temp tracks to see what tone might work and never found anything until Antony got it or she and anthony were talking and he was like let me give it a try and he came up with some stuff and she's like oh it's just perfect and i think the first piece gosh i can't remember what it is but it was actually he found a piece that he's like this is kind of what i'm thinking and she put it in and it worked perfectly so she had him do the music and it's very much an ambient type of score he integrated a lot of natural sounds into the score and just made something that i don't think you would say is something that you sit down and put on to listen to but it certainly is something that fits well in context of the film it is a soundscape more than very much yeah yeah Yeah, it's not a listenable thing i don't even did they even release a score of it did you look i didn't look honestly i didn't check Yeah. yeah Uh, all right. Well, I, any uh, final comments before we move into, uh, you know, your favorite parts? I don't think so. I think. All right. Think How did it do at award season? It, it did well for itself. This was, uh, I, I think, in context of Holland's most uh, recognized films, might be the second uh, behind Europa Europa. This film had 11 wins, 18 other nominations. It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars, but it did lose to A Separation, the Iranian film, which is uh, a lot of acclaim. I still have yet to see that one, but it's been one that's uh, long on my list. Uh, so I'm very excited about that one. At the Polish Film Awards, it received 10 nominations. We had Robert Wienskiewicz. He won Best Actor. You already mentioned Kinga Priest, who played his wife. She won Best Supporting Actress. And Cinematography won uh, for the film. Those three won. Outside of that, it was nominated for Best Film. It lost to a film called Rose, or Rosa, 
which I hadn't heard of before, but now I'm really curious about it. This is the uh, synopsis on Letterboxd. This harrowing tale of survival centers on Rose, a Masurian woman whose German soldier husband was killed in the war, leaving her alone on their farm. A single woman had no defense against Russian soldiers who raped as a form of revenge, nor against plundering Poles who found themselves in desperate straits. Help arrives for Rose in the form of Tadius, a former officer in the Polish Home Army who deserted after he saw his wife raped and murdered by Russian troops and is attempting to hide his identity. Sounds like an interesting one. Yeah. That's the film that won Best Film. Uh, Agnieszka Holland was nominated for Best Director, but she lost to the director of Rose. Also, the screenplay lost to Rose. Agnieszka Grochowska, she played the woman in the film uh, Clara, who uh, Mundek is kind of falling for. Uh, Mundek, by the way, Benno Furman, what a face. He had a really uh, interesting truly. face. Um, anyway, Agnieszka Grochowska was nominated for Best Actress, but she lost to um, uh, Agata Kulesa in Rose. And uh, then the other ones, the score lost to Black Thursday, and costume design and production design both, both lost to the film The Mill and the Cross. So, uh, but it's still, it was a film that a lot of people recognized. It, uh, I think it definitely was the sort to garner some nominations. Well, it's, it's kind of rewarding too, after watching Europa Europa and the, the sort of home country, or, or at least in, in Germany, they did not like this film. Uh, right. I mean, this was not, mm. that was not a popular film. And this one, right. it seems like was, uh, possibly redemptive in, in terms yeah. of certainly awards. It, was it redemptive uh, at the box office? Boy, I tell you, another Holland film, another one with no budgetary information online. Alas, um, this film did have its premiere in Warsaw, September 9th, 2011, before hitting the festival circuit for several months. It did play in New York City December 9th, 2011, then had its limited release in art house theaters starting February 10th, 2012, Opening opposite Journey to the Mysterious Island, <laughs> Safe House, The Vow, Star Trek, Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace 3D, and the limited release of Rampart. Wow. Very uh, diverse weekend. <laughs> Uh, this movie went on to earn almost $7 million domestically and about $9.7 million internationally, giving it a gross total of $19 million in today's dollars. No idea if it was profitable or not, but with the awards buzz it got, hopefully it did manage to find a profit at the box office. Well, I hope so, and I am glad I paid to see it this here, fine here. digital-only weekend. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this one in, in, as we go to the mat, Andy, because uh, it, it's another one that I, I feel more confident in my ability to describe where the stars fell. You and this star falling thing. You love it. I know you uh, love it. And that's why you give me such grief about it. I know it's because you're really adapting to it in the way you think about movies. So here we go. Let's, uh, what do you say? We do a little flick chart. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this show. Uh, and you can, if you swipe over in your show notes and you hit the word flick chart, you'll go straight to this movie in the flick chart catalog where you can add it to your own list and see how it stacks up against ours. First up, In Darkness or Autumn Sonata. Uh, in darkness for me. I will say in darkness. In darkness or do the right thing. I will say I will do say, the right thing. Do the right thing. Mm -hmm. In darkness go. or night of the living dead. Night of the living dead. Night Ugh. of the living dead. In darkness or hero. 
Zhang Yimou, I will say yeah. hero. Hero. In darkness, or Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney Todd, this is not great. Sweeney Todd. In darkness, or lethal weapon. Lethal weapon. I'll say lethal weapon. In darkness, or life of the party. Well, that was one of my guilty pleasures. You know, I'm going to go with life of the party. Yeah, no, I'll go with, I'm not guilty about how much I like that movie. <laughs> In darkness, or creep show. Oh, creep show. Yeah, creep show. In darkness, or Robin Hood, prince of thieves. Your favorite <laughs> Robin Hood. I'm going to go in darkness. I will say in darkness. That lands in darkness in spot 224 on our chart. That is 224 out of 449 or a 50%. Wow. Wow. It, it really, uh, it, you know, it's a it's a tough one. It is tough. I will I'll say So that. as we started, we were gearing up to do this show. And the last one of the last texts I got from you uh, as we were trying to coordinate pushing the magic button was, well, I totally got sidetracked trying to get this movie ranked on my own flick chart. Took forever. Now, that could be because of technical difficulties at flickchart.com. But it also could be that you were stymied by the decisions that you had to make, <laughs> which is true, Andy. It is. Uh, it's neither. It's actually a long story that it's not worth telling. <laughs> Oh, I was hoping for drama. Uh, drama. I, I it did not take me very long, but I was I was uh, and and I think it did better on my own flick chart. How did it end up doing it on yours? It did better on my own flick chart, certainly. I mean, better than fifty percent, but it's still it's it's a hard film to watch. So it's one that I that lost to some that I would say are probably not the better film, but it's certainly the film that I'm going to put on first. So it ended up landing at a 78%, at 973 out of 43.26. Okay, that's about right. Uh, it came out of 1446 movies for me. It landed at 344, which is a 76%. Um, it, it hit all the Edgar Wright films for some reason. What are you going to do <laughs> with the Edgar yeah. Wright films? Yeah, so um, it, it's, uh, it actually performed pretty well. According to the algorithm, uh, over at letterbox.com, I should be rating this a four-star experience. Um, I'm pretty comfortable with that. I think I could be swayed a little bit in either direction, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it. It was an audacious film. It was a technical achievement. I enjoyed watching it for those reasons and for the performance of, uh, you know, our central protagonists, I think both above the ground and below, I think they were, uh, they were delightful faces doing hard things. And, uh, so whether or not I, I got sidetracked by the, the difficulties of, um, you know, his wife and what she was doing and the way they handled time, uh, overall it was a good experience and I learned a little something along the way. I, I ended up falling slightly below you. I'm at a three and a half, um, but I still give it a three and a half and a like. I, I find this to be a powerful, interesting film. Uh, it just wasn't one that I loved, but I still really am impressed with what Holland did here. And I think she uh, you know, told a really fascinating story that is another facet of World War II that I was really excited to learn about. So where do we take this for next week? We're not doing another Holocaust movie. We are not. This is going to be an interesting shift. We're moving to one of her more recent films, not her most recent, but one of the more recent called Spore. It is a Polish crime film that she uh, adapted from the novel Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead. <laughs> so, yeah, from so, 2017. Wow. It's mm -hmm. another cheery, cheery film. 
When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Uh, Amazon giveth, Andrew. As Amazon always do. Mm, we're living at the bottom of the barrel. It's bottom of the barrel nation, Andy. Certainly we are. What'd you find? I found a one star by Steph. Mm. Would you like to hear it? Mm-hmm. And how? <laughs> Steph said, didn't care to buy since it wasn't in English language. They need to remake in English. No one wants to read subtitles. You know what? You know, I I hear she wasn't a fan of this year's Oscars either. No, I think, you know, we need, we just, we need to do a TNR, no one wants to read a movie shirt. (laughs) Like, we should, I would wear that and just put the Amazon smile, but not the word. Just the Amazon smile. No one wants to read a movie quote. One star. uh, Do you think we'd be, I think maybe. I think too many people are going to take it seriously and probably punch us. But would they buy the shirt? (laughs) I have a one star from Mrs. Smith who says this was awful. I was glad the grandkids weren't here. I wanted history. I got sexual encounter and then more sexual encounters. My brains is scarred. Lousy writers, producers are too lazy to produce history. Her brains are scarred. No, her brains is scarred, Pete. Thanks, Mrs. Andy. Brains, my brain's I, a scar. Mrs. Smith, my brain's a scar. I accidentally autocorrected. You, you see, did. I my my brains is Grammarly. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>